Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about how to talk with one another. The polarization that is gripping our politics and culture makes it really difficult for us to talk with people with whom we disagree. Jennifer McCoy is a professor of political science at Georgia State University who has spent a long time thinking about how we depolarize our culture and our politics here in America and how people are doing it all around the world. Really interesting conversation about an important subject as we get ready for another big election cycle here in America. Professor McCoy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. So I want to start with what I was just talking about. This pernicious polarization, I believe, is what you call it. Uh, Yes. How did we we get here? Uh, What does that look like? And I guess, what are the causes for this pernicious polarization? Yeah, it's um, I think your your description uh, that you started out with is excellent. Uh, it's complex, a number of reasons why we how we got here and why we're here. But I think first, it's really important to clarify what we're talking about. And so when I use that term, I'm talking about extreme political polarization where a society has divided into mutually distrustful political camps. And where indeed, as you said, we we don't trust each other, we don't um, understand each other, and we actually arrive to a point of perceiving the other side as an existential threat to our way of life or to the nation. And Pew Research, whom you cited, has also shown that among Democrats and Republicans, uh, right before the last election, the last presidential election, 2020, up to 90% of Democrats and Republicans feared the other as a, as an actual existential threat to the nation if they were come to power. So this is really pernicious for uh, consequences for democracy because first we can't even um, agree on solving important problems. You know, we divided over the pandemic, which should have been a unifying, you know, all hands on deck uh, external threat. And we divided over how to handle it and climate change and, you know, childhood poverty, many, many things. So first is simply we can't come together to solve problems. And second, it really, when we have such perception of threat from the other side, we may be willing to support anti-democratic behavior from our political leaders or take behavior ourselves. If you look at the January 6th, you know, the the most extreme kind of expression of Mm -hmm. political dissent that we have seen recently. So how did we get here? Um, It's, you know, I I think it goes back decades and it's these broad changes in the economy, in society, in culture that have happened since the 60s and 70s for the United States and globally. But when we started seeing these big um, changes, demographic changes, and how those um, reflect in the, the different roles that people play in society, we saw the Civil Rights Act, you know, giving African-Americans, you know, the right to vote and other rights uh, for the first time really codified and enforced in law. 
uh, we saw the women's movement in the 19, so that was in the 1960s, women's movement in the 1970s. We've seen a proliferation of religious views uh, in the United States and of uh, people expressing their gender orientation. And many of these changes are simply scary to people. Mm -hmm. They see their culture, their values changing. They're, you know, they're just scared. They don't understand it. Or they they fear that the values that the bedrock values as they view the United States are being diffused. So that's one reason. But it also has to do with technological change. And here, changes in our information um, technology from the rise of the internet, the rise, and it's not just social media. I go back to the rise of cable news, 24 hours mm -hmm. bombarding us and with a lot of opinion thrown into the news and talk radio in the 1990s, uh, really began to up the much more vitriolic rhetoric, the language being used. And that was mirrored by a similar uprise in the 1990s, uh, particularly a, a, an actual strategy carried out by Newt Gingrich when uh, the, he took over as Republican um, Speaker of the House of Representatives in, in Washington. Uh, you know, an actual laid out strategy with instructions to his members to use these kinds of language that you were talking about in the poll, mm -hmm. you know, that Democrats are unpatriotic and, you know, traitorous and, uh, you know, evil using this kind of language. So when people hear their media representatives and political leaders demonizing the other side, then, you know, they take that in and they think there must be something behind that. So it isn't just the citizens on the ground. And in fact, the citizens, the voters are not so divided on actual issues. They're divided on how they view the other political uh, party hmm. and its supporters. But the leaders, political candidates, political um, parties and leaders, and along with their kind of media allies are are really divided and are expressing this division in very uncivil ways. And, you know, I have to say, I, I don't want to sound partisan. Um, and there's been movement on issues in both parties, but it is asymmetrical in terms of the use of the vitriolic language mm -hmm. and now much more of the tolerating hate speech and even tolerating political violence is what we've seen is 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 very strong within the Republican Party. That yeah. is the ref the unwillingness to denounce clearly uh, violence, political violence, or anti-democratic actions. That is concentrated in the Republican Party, so it is asymmetrical. Yeah. But I think what what's crucial then is to distinguish between voters and kind of common people and political leaders that are you know, kind of driving this um, polarization and painting the other side in order to get elected, uh, both parties talk about the threat from the other side, if the other side is to be elected, and the voters kind of follow along, and they're already anxious and suspicious and distrustful, and it just gets exacerbated. And this has been building up over the last three decades. Yeah. So, so I want to talk specifically about the pushback that I get all the time when I talk about 
civility. And the, the word itself is quite charged in some communities. In the African-American community, for instance, a lot of us feel like that word means be quiet, stop protesting, stop standing up for yourself. Um, but but even in a broader sense than that, and the problematic, uh, problematic kind of context of the word, you have a lot of people who say the other side, conservatives, for instance, um, uh, don't see me as a as a human being. Uh, if if I'm a member of the LGBTQ community, for instance, uh, I, I think it's reasonable to say that conservatives don't want people in that in that uh, category to to have equal rights or to, to just exist. Uh, uh, African Americans, of course, we, we fear the loss of the rights that we've gained over the last 50 years uh, because of the changes that you were talking about. And conservatives seem to lean into that and say, yeah, no, we don't think you should have those rights in quite the same way that 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 you do now. Uh, women, uh, I think, feel that same threat. Um, and so what's the reason then to not frame this as an all or nothing kind of debate. In other words, it's not just that we're talking about these things, but that there are consequences for the resolution of those discussions that threaten the the dignity, the the human existence of people on on one side. What's your answer to to that? What is the reason if that's how you feel to engage in civil dialogue rather than spirited protest? Uh, yes, a couple of things. First, we have to take a if we take a long-term historical view, we see w- one thing that I have identified and with my co-authors as uh, particularly difficult uh, and pernicious origins of polarization are countries, that were divided from their very beginning mm-hmm. on certain issues, and particularly the question of who is a citizen, who is a full citizen, who belongs to our political community. And the United States, uh, as we know, was very divided, what we call a formative rift in, uh, it wasn't divided. I mean, the United States, you know, uh, from the beginning did not give full citizenship to women to Native Americans, and at all to African Americans, to slaves. Mm -hmm. And so over that time, so that rift, those rifts have always been there and have never been completely resolved. But we've made steps along the way in our history for two centuries. When we make steps forward to be more inclusive for any of those groups, we've also faced a backlash each time. Mm -hmm. So obviously we went through the Civil War, we had reconstruction, we had rights then, uh, constitutional amendments to give rights to the African-Americans. And then we had a backlash and huge. And we ended up with, you know, 50, 70 years of Jim Crow laws in particularly in the American South uh, that simply refused to recognize those rights. And, you know, the same with women's rights, the same uh, also, we can bring religion in there too. So we've got these debates that have never been fully resolved 
from the beginning of this country. So that makes it particularly difficult for the United States. But I would say it's also, we have other large, very diverse uh, countries and that also are facing difficult polarization now so that we are very similar in that sense to Brazil and India, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Very large democracies, very diverse in terms of you know, religion or race or you know, multicultural and multiracial. Um, so, we, so we expect that every time there's progress, there's a backlash. That's kind of how history and progress works. And so I wouldn't despair to say that because we're seeing a backlash now, that doesn't mean that that's a good time and crisis is a good time for change, mm. for reform. And so to answer your friends, yes, we need to fight for reform. The question is, how do we fight? The reason why people are feeling unrecognized, denigrated, dehumanized by others is because those others really do not understand and are afraid. And if we can have more communication and the kind of exercise that you're trying to do and other groups like Braver Angels and other groups are trying to do this, the civil dialogue, that's gonna help the communication and the understanding and help to move away from that dehumanization um, as people become more reassured, oh, this LGBT person or this African-American or, you know, this Muslim person is really not so different from me after mm -hmm. all, is mm -hmm. really not so threatening. So that's one key. But in terms of standing up for values, for ideas, for principles of rights, of democracy, that's absolutely critical. We cannot stay silent and we cannot stay complacent. So when I say, so we have to distinguish, there's a difference between civility and consensus. Yes. So consensus means we agree on everything. No democracy has that. There's, we're never gonna agree on all the issues. What we do need to agree on are the basic rules of the game, the basic framework, which is going to include how we choose our representatives that are going to be making decisions and governing and deciding on issues. So the basic rules of democracy, we need to have a, an agreement on that in society, on the rules of the game. And then they can duke it out on what the actual issues and policies are. Um, we have lost that. We have lost that basic agreement on, on whether how our elections function and whether they actually function at all. Yeah. So that's a we're at a critical moment in American democracy because of that. Yeah, yeah. And, we have, and we have to agree on what political scientists call tolerance. That means respecting that every citizen, every member of the community once, well, see, this is the problem. We haven't even decided, we haven't even agreed that everyone living here is a member of the community. Right. So that's the first problem. But we have to agree on the principle that um, one, everyone, you know, the inclusion of everyone and that everyone should have, you know, equal rights and respect as another, as an equal citizen. And then we engage in, you know, and their rights to protest and whatever, pursue, advocate for the policies they want, but to do so in, uh, uh, in a respectful way that respects them as a legitimate opponent, a legitimate opposition 
not an illegitimate or an unpatriotic one. That's the problem. They're being painted now. People are seeing, you know, one side or the other painted as unpatriotic, as illegitimate opposition. And as I said, there is an asymmetry in this. It yeah. is more from the Republican Party. I'm very sorry to say, but sure. it, it's kind of objectively measured. Um, but so that's absolutely critical. So fighting for values and ideas is extremely important, but not doing it, not reciprocating the demonizing, dehumanizing uh, kinds of language or labels on the opponents, simply saying, here are the things we have to fight for, including my own rights and, you know, dignity as a fellow citizen. Yes, yes. I am fighting for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but not reciprocating that pernicious, polarizing kind of strategy. Yeah, yeah. we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really great conversation with Jennifer McCoy about polarization and how we talk to each other, how we do that a little better than we are doing right now. Also going to get going with you on the phones and on social, Mike and Chesterfield, Madeline and Mount Clemens. You'll be up next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined. Today we are talking about the pernicious polarization that affects our politics and our culture right now. Think of how frequently you find yourself either in arguments about politics or culture, or maybe even withdrawing from places where you'll find those discussion or arguments because you think they're so nasty. This is something that is afflicting so many Americans right now because our politics are so divided, but also because we haven't really learned to sort through issues together, to be able to talk to one another about our differences without resorting to the nastiness or, in some cases, even the violence that we see uh, on a national level. Jennifer McCoy is with us. She is a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She has spent a long time thinking and writing about polarization in this country and others, talking about ways that we could do it differently. In a little bit, we're going to be joined by Nolan Finley, who is a conservative and the editorial page editor of the Detroit News. He and I are co-founders of the Great Lakes Civility Project, which is our effort to get people to talk to one another, get to know one another a little better, not to back down from what we believe or who we are, but to be able to see that when we do talk to each other, when we listen to each other, when we drop assumptions about one another, there is a way to be able to function together. It doesn't mean that we will all get what we want or win all the time. It doesn't also mean that we'll lose all the time. It just means that we're able to respect each other enough to have the conversation about those differences. Uh, Jennifer, before we get to our callers, and we've got a number of people already queued up, you were talking earlier about the similarities between America and our divided politics and 
other democracies, specifically Brazil and India. I think that's a really important uh, set of examples. And I want to give you just a little time to talk about the things that you see that they are able to do or not able to do in those countries that we ought to be taking taking our cues from. Uh, yeah, Brazil is very interesting. People have compared that a lot. The Bol- Bolsonaro, the president, the previous president was kind of seen as the Trump of Latin America and that he had kind of similar uh, views, was espousing kind of very controversial you know, anti-women uh, and anti-LGBTQ views, very pro-dictatorship uh, in that case uh, in in Brazil's history. Um, he was ousted in the last election in 2022 and was uh, made similar claims about election fraud. In that case, the Supreme Court of Brazil, which also include, they run their elections very differently. Well, the U.S. is unique in the world <laughs> for how we run our elections, which mm-hmm. is at the state level. They do have a, a a national level election commission and the Supreme Court justices from that sit on the election authority. Mm. Uh, but they simply said, uh, you know, the elections are fine. They, they, they refuted uh, clearly Bolsonaro's claim of election um, fraud. And they actually have banned him from running again for a period of time. So there, the Supreme Court has taken, it, it's been a very activist Supreme Court, but they have taken um, action. And there was a similar kind of popular uh, attack on the Congress and the Supreme Court buildings and the presidential buildings in the capital of Brazil, similar to January 6th here, that happened after the last election, rather than before, but after. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, uh, you know, kind of roundly denounced uh, across the board in in Brazil. So I think that, you know, they've kind of actually handled uh, threats to democracy or to in- electoral integrity very differently and have gotten broader consensus among among the society to try to protect democracy in elections than here. India's is different and it's got very, there it's a kind of religious divide that the current pres, uh, prime minister is kind of espousing his political party, Hindu nationalism and trying to exclude uh, Muslims and Muslim immigrants. And that has kind of whipped up some violence at local levels and violence on mosques uh, and this kind of thing. And it's been very unfortunate because India had been a much more secular country when it was founded in 1947 in order to protect uh, religious diversity in the country and was strongly secular up until um, very recently with the current government that's now trying to kind of whip this up as uh, religious conflict as part of the strategy to stay in power. Now let's start with our, our callers here with Mike in Chesterfield. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. How's everything going? Go ahead. Uh, good. It's good to hear from you, Mike. Good to hear from you, too, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, with our with our divisions, um, I think you can you know, kind of trace back throughout history. You know, we've been through periods of times like this before. I think a really good one is kind of like the one-two punch after um, reconstruction of the election of 1876 mixed with the assassination of the GOAT president, uh, James Garfield. Um, 
then you have the modern day um, form of division I would trace back to the assassination of President Kennedy. And ever since then, the continuous decline of trust within institutions, within government, within um, not only politicians, but within each other in this form of not only this partisan bickering, but also within parties as well. Hmm. If you notice, like, there is a notation within the parties that there is no dissension allowed. You look at how, you know, um, how much of the Trump-based part of the wing of the Republican Party is pretty much taken over the party, but it's kind of like this tug of war still going on. And then you also notice how in the Democrats, democracy is pretty much gone within the party. And it's a it's sort of a notation of if they if you're not willing to look in the mirror and admit to yourself that you're a part of the problem, if everyone isn't then we're just going to consistently blame another person. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I, I appreciate the call and, and the uh, the insights. You're someone who's uh, participated in our program for a really long time. I know that uh, that you're an independent, and, and it's important, I think, to hear from, from that point of view as much as we can. I, I would disagree with, with uh, some of your assessment of the two parties. I, I think there is... Uh, a real difference in the way that the parties deal with internal differences right now, for instance. Um, uh, and, and this goes back and forth, right, o- over time. But right now, I think it's much harder uh, inside the Republican Party to express dissent and 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 kind of have a, a well-rounded conversation about things than it is inside the Democratic Party. I mean, if you think about the fact that Joe Biden and uh, Alexandria Octavio on the on the in the Congress are in the same party. I mean, that's a that's a real range represented there. Bernie Sanders, for instance. Um, but but I hear what you're saying about about this um, uh, this reluctance to 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 think about the threat that you know we feel from people who disagree. Uh, Jennifer McCoy, I'll give you a chance to respond to Mike as well. Yeah, I'll say two things quickly. Um, I, I think there were a couple of points that are important to bring out in that comment from Mike. One is that there there's a large, you know, there's at least 40% of the population that don't identify with either party and that uh, are, are kind of fed up with politics. And, um, you know, and just, and there's a very large distrust of the government, of government institutions that I would say actually goes back to uh, the Vietnam War and Watergate when we found out, you know, that there actually were uh, bad things going on by mm-hmm. the government. Mm-hmm. And so that distrust does stem back to those. Uh, but so bringing back trust in government is very critical. And right now, of course, that's one of our points of polarization is that, you know, those who are out of power are saying, you know, don't trust the government. And and some are going further. Uh, and particularly, you know, former President Trump is saying, don't trust the FBI, don't trust, uh, you know, uh, basically the government at all. Um, and so, so we have that. The second point is the divisions within the parties. That's absolutely right. The parties are divided internally, but they always have been. What's different today than back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, is that the parties then were divided, but they were divided in different ways so that Republicans had both conservatives and more liberal people Mm -hmm. that the different factions could actually make a coalition 
with the divisions in the in the Democrats. So the Democrats had the very conservative Southern uh, Democrats who also were opposed to the Civil Rights um, Act. And then they had the more uh, liberal or progressive uh, Democrats. And so they could make cross party coalitions on different types of issues. Mm-hmm. After the Civil Rights Act, the Republican Party made a bid for Southerners who were, you know, anxious about the civil rights and and successfully brought them into the Republican Party, brought a lot of Southerners in, along with uh, evangelicals. Ronald Reagan made a bid for bringing evangelical Christians into the Republican Party so that today, you know, you've seen this huge um, shift in the South completely turned over from one party machine democratic states to basically one party Republican states now. And so, but with our polarization between the parties, it means that there are no coalitions that can cross over. And so if a party is divided internally, one camp in there can't go and make a coalition and get support from the other party for their legislation. Yeah. It doesn't happen. That's why we're stuck. And so if a party is divided internally, like the Republicans now, obviously the the problems in getting a budget uh, because they're not going to go to the Democrats and the Democrats aren't going to support them (laughs) on getting a budget. And so they have to do it just on their on their own. And Democrats similarly have had trouble getting their own, you know, a majority, uh, getting their full party because we're so closely divided within the Congress. It's such a close and within the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to make sure I correct uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's name, which I butchered the first time uh, I made reference to her. But uh, I, I still think it's pretty remarkable that she's in the same party as Joe Biden and Joe Manchin, who's the senator from West Virginia. I think that does represent an incredible a breadth of, of of political thought within one party. I think that's not quite as broad on on the right side, but that's that's my take on it. Uh, Mike, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's next go to Henry in Dearborn. Henry, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so yeah, so I'm I'm in Dearborn. Uh, I'm a college student. I'm also just like Mike, an independent, and uh, basically. Uh, what I I guess um, I am an independent, and on most issues I am more liberal than conservative. But one of the things I have noticed, and also I, I don't think it was deliberate, but uh, during the talk today, it was the, the idea essentially that on most things, that it's people who are more conservative who are just essentially scared, and that they need to be educated to go along with the with the with with the more liberal. Um, opinions and everything. And I would say that, I mean, because, you know, being right now in Dearborn and everything, uh, I've gotten to talk to a lot of people. And I know that there are many, uh, especially in the, in the Muslim community, uh, many people who are, um, I guess, sort of, uh, I, I'll give you an example. So when it comes to conservatism, uh, there are many Muslims who are not at all comfortable with the idea that uh, in schools, for instance, that their children would be learning that, you know, it's okay to, that they're able to change their gender or whatever. Um, when it conservatives speak out against, um, you know, whether it be transgender things or stuff like that, uh, at least from what I've seen, conservatives, they say, well, listen, you guys are saying that we can change, that kids can change their gender. This was not true five minutes ago. It just all of a sudden came mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And in other countries, like in Europe, 
they're actually turning around and they're saying, wait a minute, we shouldn't do this things to, these things to children because we're seeing negative effects. So I, it, like in Britain so, right now, so Henry, let me let me let me stop you right there, and and I super, I, I absolutely appreciate the point. I don't think anyone is saying that you can't believe what you believe. No one's telling conservatives that they have to believe themselves uh, anything about gender or or uh, sexual orientation or anything like that. I think. The point that we were trying to make uh, and that our guest was trying to make is that you do have to have respect for what other people decide to do with their own lives. And you have to respect their humanity no matter what choice they're making. And so what we see in the culture right now is one side, and it's not everybody on that side, of course, but but many conservatives who want to deny uh, members of the LGBTQ community, uh, their rightful place in in society to be able to make the same choices that everybody else does, to be able to enjoy all the same rights that everybody else does. I, th- I think that's very different from um, from what what you're what you're saying about what what's happening. Um, it, it, no one's no one's denying conservatives anything about themselves or their lives. It's pushback against their attempts to deny uh, to deny other folks. Uh, Jennifer McCoy, I wonder what your reaction is to Henry. Um, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, but it's also that if if we look broadly at societal change, societies do change um, culturally over time. It's usually a broad, slow change. And if we just look at gay rights, for example, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, people were not coming out at all. It was just taboo. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be accepted. Mm -hmm. Then by 2000, when was it, 11, 12, the the mood, the, the attitudes in society had changed so much that the Supreme Court authorized gay marriage. I mean, that's a tremendous sea change in culture. And so now, yes, now there's a big, you know, focus on transgender rights, um, which is actually, you know, a very small portion of the population. But there's there's a lot of attention paid to that. But I think that it's part of this process of change. And I and I I think you're absolutely right to um, to to say that it it it's a question of of not denying someone else's rights to do as long as they're not harming you know the rest of society Mm -hmm. then uh respecting them their rights to carry out to live you know love who they want that all of that to live as they want to identify as they want it's not imposing one view on everyone it's allowing that and it's not also the reverse it's not imposing uh, you know, their view about um, uh, whatever kind of transcultural or transgender or anything on uh, on conservatives. Right. It's also very interesting the point uh, made by the caller that yes, there are within a lot of the um, you know kind of minority communities, Muslim, uh, Latino. Sure. Uh, African American. There, there's a lot of conservative values. There are conservative cultural values, absolutely. Exactly, yeah. 
Exactly. I've always saw that, seen that as somewhat of an opportunity for the conservative party to reach out to them, uh, exactly. to us. But of course, race for African-Americans uh, really gets in the way of that, as does the issue of immigration uh, for for Muslim and Latino uh, communities. Uh, okay, uh, Jennifer McCoy, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about uh, polarization. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, Nolan Finley, the editorial page editor of the Detroit News, is going to join to talk about the effort that he and I are making to try to figure out how to get more people to talk with one another, to talk across political divides. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Stay where you are. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining us. Practice what you preach. It's something I say all the time. Don't go around talking about something if you're not willing to do it. We've been talking about civil conversation and depolarization here on Detroit Today, and I want to welcome somebody that I am trying to practice that with. Nolan Finley is the editorial page editor of the Detroit News. He's a conservative, and he and I are the co-founders of the Great Lakes Civility Project, which is an attempt to get people, more people, to learn how to listen to each other, to learn to talk together, and to learn that they don't have to back away from what they believe in order to have meaningful exchanges with people with whom they disagree. Uh, this year, uh, we are doing an event at Henry Ford College uh, for civility. It is on Wednesday, September 27th. That is this Wednesday to talk about that event and what the civility project is all about. I'm now joined by Nolan. Nolan, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Steve. Been a while. Yeah. So first, let's talk about what's happening on Wednesday at uh, Henry Ford College in Dearborn. Yeah, well, when, uh, Henry Ford has been a very good partner to the civility project, and <clears throat> they're having us uh, and Wednesday evening to talk to uh, not only their students, but their community uh, out there uh, about civility and the principles of civility. And, uh, you know, we'll run through our program, our tips on how to maintain relationships across the political divide. And, you know, it's a program we've been doing for a while, and I'm anxious to um, – be out in Dearborn on Wednesday night. Yeah, we've shared this approach with hundreds of people over the last few years. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors, uh, Delta Dental and Huntington Bank and the Ralph Wilson Foundation for, for their support. Uh, but talk about what we're doing, Nolan, and why it's important, but also what it's not. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people, I think, who mistake this for an effort to just get along with each other, which which we do anyway because we're friends. Uh, but but in a political context, you know, it's not as though we're saying to each other, you need to back away from your position or no. I need to back away from mine. Uh, we're saying we, we need to be able to respect those positions and talk about them. Yeah, we're trying to tone down the hate, and we've become a much more hateful society, and I think dangerously so. And, you know, we know what the 
outcome of hate is. And, you know, a lot of this hatred uh, is rooted in a lack of understanding of each other, certainly a lack of respect for each other. And what we're trying to do is get people to do is break down their assumptions of people who don't agree with it. Uh, with them politically or or otherwise. Uh, You know, we make certain assumptions when we hear people say things we don't agree with. We assume in a lot of cases uh, there's something sinister about them. And, you know, our principle, our key principle at the Civility Project is that, you know, all good people come to their decisions in in the same way. They take the facts, the information, the data, run them through the filter of their own experiences, and they come up with an opinion. And that opinion is different than mine or yours. doesn't make them evil, doesn't make them stupid. just means they've lived a different life. And, you know, the key to having <clears> – <throat> excuse me this morning, I got a, a bad throat. But the key to making uh, or to having a civil engagement is to try to understand what those values and experiences are. So, uh, you know, one of the things I think is also important is that, uh, you know, we come to this pretty clear eyed and uh, both of us, I think, can point to instances in our past where we have been uncivil, (laughs) either with each other or with other people. And, you know, the truth is that's okay. No one's perfect. No one's going to be able to do this all the time. There are times when you're going to get really upset with people about what they say or do. And you may you may react in the wrong way or or overreact. Uh, both of us, I think, have had to acknowledge that uh, sometimes we slip up. Are you there, Nolan? Sorry, Steve. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone would mistake either one of us for Gandhi. I mean, we are um, flawed people. We do have tempers. Um, we do sometimes. I think both of us say things we wish we hadn't said, but we're also mindful of, with each other at least, of the line uh, and lines we don't cross uh, in order to maintain a civil. Take Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, we've got only about a minute left, but wanted to get you in here. Oh, cool. Thanks, Stephen. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess one overarching thought is it's really hard to have good discourse when the foundation of our truths uh, vary, right? So if we can't come together on what's true, I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible to then have a constructive conversation. And so I, I throw that out as bad news, but then I'll throw out what I kind of do in the face of that. And, and you know, this kind of comes more natural. I guess I'm a, uh, well, I guess I'm a professional consultant. So, and my partner happens to be a, a mental health therapist. And so I approach those opportunities with a mindset of seeking to understand uh, before seeking to be understood. Yeah. Oh, I, think, wow. I think that is so hard in this world of social media when all social media is there to do is to seek to be understood. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it doesn't exercise the muscle of seeking to Jimmy, understand. First. Jimmy, I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. That is a great point. I'm glad you called uh, to make it. Uh, Nolan, uh, I want to thank you for being here. What Jimmy's yeah. saying, though, is absolutely right. Seek to understand before insisting that you're understood. That really is a great uh, summary of what we're trying to do at the Great Lakes Civility Project. 
That's it for the Detroit Today podcast. You like this show. You get a lot out of it. You ought to be sharing it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors, your relative, anyone you think would enjoy it and would add to this community that we're building here. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our podcast is edited by Jack Philbrand. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.